Hey everybody. How's it going? Yeah, everybody excited about this time change? <laughs> if you're excited about that, that's something. Yeah, the time change has kind of got me a little messed up. I'm not woke up real good yet. Okay, my name is Alan. For those of you that may not know me, normally I'm up here with... Hey, how's it going, everybody? Normally I'm up here with the, uh, with the worship team. Uh, but every now and then, and today is one of those every now and thens, I get to be your substitute preacher. And so today, I'm going to be talking to you a little bit. We're in the middle of a sermon series called, uh, Who Do You Say I Am? And see, it's part of a larger effort. We have a year-long theme of looking at Jesus closer than we've ever looked before, focusing on him. And it only makes sense, because everything that we believe are, Jesus is the author of our faith. He's the foundation. He's what Christianity is all about. And yet sometimes we can kind of miss the forest for the trees. And so in this first lesson series on who do you say that I am, we're looking at the different names that Jesus was called. And it's giving us more insight into who he is, what he's like, what he's about. And so today we're going to continue that. I'm going to show you a name that I found. It's in Matthew 13, and it's called the Carpenter's Son. I'll read it for you here. It's out of Matthew 13, verses 53 through 58. It said, When Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked. See, now this was his hometown, and see what's going on is, in any Jewish Jewish community where there were at least ten Jewish people, they would put together what they called a synagogue, which was like a small church. And it wasn't anything, you know, fancy. Sometimes it was just a a, a one-room house. But they would get together kind of like we do on Sunday mornings, except they would do it on Saturday mornings. And a lot of these places couldn't afford to have a regular hired preacher or even a good teacher. So sometimes what they would do is uh, they would just kind of pass off those duties amongst the men in that congregation. But if they had someone who was a teacher or, or a prophet who was floating through town, they were always quick to invite that person to do the teaching. Well, Jesus at this point is becoming a little bit of a rock star. Now they know him because this is his hometown. But he's actually just come from Capernaum. And in Capernaum, he has at least two things that have gone on. He's standing up in their synagogue on a Saturday morning when he starts preaching. One of the guys starts flipping out. He had a demon. And so Jesus actually drives out the demon, which will get attention for you if you're a preacher. If you can drive out a demon, that'll get some attention. Then they go there. You know how sometimes preachers go home for chicken with people's families after church? Instead of going home for fried chicken, Peter he goes over to Peter's house and heals his mother who's got... A, a fever. Interesting thing about that is Jesus actually rebuked the fever, which, why would he rebuke something that didn't have a personality? Maybe the fever was more demonic than it was physical. Just an interesting little tidbit. But news is getting out about Jesus. And so he goes from Capernaum and he comes back to his hometown, and that's where we're picking up this story. And they had heard about him, and they said, Where did this man get this wisdom? And these miraculous powers. Isn't this the carpenter's son? 
Isn't, this, isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where did this man get all these things? You see, they, they knew him as the carpenter's son. Now, interestingly enough, there's a guy by the name of Origen, and he was a second century author and, and a, a, what they call a church father. We can't confirm what he says, but he says that Jesus in Nazareth, him and his dad, of course, Jesus didn't start his ministry until he was about 30 years old, and up until that time, he had worked as a local carpenter. And Origen records that he had a shop, him and Joseph had a shop, and outside their shop, they had hanging a yoke. Apparently, their specialty was a yoke, was making animal yokes for farming. And their slogan was, our yokes fit well. Which is kind of ironic, given Jesus' statement about come and take my yoke upon you and learn from me. But anyhow, Jesus was well known as a carpenter. And verse 57 says, and they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his own his hometown and in his own home. And it says there he didn't do many miracles because of their lack of faith. Now this is how he was received back at his own hometown. Now so far in this series, we've looked at a few different names. Names like Prince of Peace, the Good Shepherd, Son of Man, a friend of tax collectors, the bright morning star, my Redeemer. I don't think I've missed any of those, the names that we've covered so far. But can you see a difference between those names and the carpenter's son? I would suggest to you that those are descriptions. They give you insight into who Jesus is. But this one, the carpenter's son, sounds to me more like a label than a, than a name or a description. Do you know the difference between a label and a description? Well, if you've ever been labeled, you might know what it is. Has anybody ever labeled you anything? <laughs> you know, if, you, if, you, if you're a leader in a church in particular, you will be labeled, right? It happens all the time. In fact, a funny story, uh, a young adult couple a couple of years ago approached my wife and I and said, hey, you know what? We're getting married. We'd like for you and your wife to do our premarital counseling. And we said, well, sure, give us a chance to get to know you. And we had a good time, and I, I don't know, we were probably three months into that, and we're sitting in the, in the backyard out on the deck one fine summer evening, and uh, the lady says, you know, we were really scared to get to know you. And I was like, why? Why would you be afraid of me? She said, well, we were told that, you know, Greater Alton had some really mean leaders, some really... Really judgmental and harsh, hard leaders. In fact, we left Greater Alton for about a year and a half because of it. And really what we were told is you were the worst of all of them. I was like, really? Me, huh? And, and she said, yeah. And, and it, what, it, See, the label had kept her from wanting to get to know me any better. I talked with her recently to ask her about that again. What do you think? She said, oh, you're not the worst. You're like maybe tied for fourth. See, the thing about descriptions is descriptions help you get to know somebody where a label just does, does just the opposite. It kind of keeps people from wanting to get to know you. If you can label somebody, you don't need to look any further, right? 
And if you've ever been labeled, you know what it's like to have somebody stop trying to understand. Now, here's the, the really tricky thing about a label. They label Jesus the carpenter's son. Is there any truth to that? Well, yeah. But is that all Jesus was? He was so much more than just the carpenter's son. So this lesson, really what I'm hoping to do is to cause you to ask yourselves, have I labeled Jesus? Have you labeled Jesus? You know, it's not just the folks in Nazareth that grew up around him that can run into this problem of labeling Jesus. I've been a Christian for 36 years, and I hate to admit it, but there have been times in my life where I look back and I know I labeled Jesus. Not in a mean way, but I stopped looking at who he was and decided that I had already understood who he was. And I think that it happens to us all the time. So in this lesson, I've got about six questions, all aimed at trying to help you probe yourself and ask, have I labeled Jesus? And I think if you'll have the courage to consider these questions honestly and to answer them honestly, it could radically change your relationship to Jesus and help you know him in a way that you never thought you could know him before. So, what happened? How is it that, that the folks in Nazareth, his, home, his hometown people, how did they come to label him the carpenter's son? I mean, how did they fall into that? Well, there's a, there's a couple of different things that people can assume about this. One, and the one that I'd always heard is, they knew Jesus, and they also knew that Jesus had a questionable family life, that he was born out of wedlock. So that was a big deal, to not know who your father was, to, have, to be born whenever your parents aren't married. And so they said, isn't this the carpenter's son, nod, nod, wink, wink, like we all know about that family. That's what I had always understood this, but I want to suggest to you that there might be another way of understanding what was going on there. It might have been that they had just become too familiar with him. See, they thought that he was one of them. So they'd heard about the hometown boy making good. And he's going around and he's doing these powerful things. He's driving out demons. He's healing sick people. This boy has got some juice and now he's coming home. So what are they thinking? He's one of us. He's just like us. If he did those things for them, what's he going to do for us? See, the problem with that is sometimes, instead of finding out who Jesus is and accepting that invitation to get to know him, we think we're so familiar with him that we think we know who he is and we end up actually recreating him in our image as opposed to being created in his. We try to make Jesus into the Jesus that we want. Anybody watch the ballad of Ricky Bobby, Talladega Nights? Why would you watch such a godless heathen? No, I didn't watch it either. My, my son, though, is, is son, my son and daughter... I'm gonna, I'm gonna, here, that's, that's the bottom of the bus, son, that you're seeing here. <laughs> you can sketch the... <laughs> Anyhow, but they are just fun to watch them tell about movies that they've seen. And apparently there's a scene in there where uh, Ricky Bobby is praying to baby Jesus. Because that's the one that he likes. You know, but he had a beard, he grew up. No, I like baby Jesus. And while that's funny because it's so absurd, the fact of the matter is that sometimes we can do the same thing. We can try to create Jesus into the one that we want. 
and we can try to recreate, recreate him into our image. In fact, it's very popular in churches right now to do a style of preaching they call felt needs preaching. You know what I'm talking about? Now, I'm not here to condemn an entire way of trying to communicate the truth. I'm just not in a position where I would know how to tell you what the best way to do that is. I, I struggle to try to communicate truth from a pulpit. It's, it's not an easy thing to do. But I think there can be potentially a problem when we hang out, hey, listen, let me tell you what Jesus can do for you. And let me tell you about how Jesus can solve the problems in your marriage and Jesus can solve the problems with your kids. He can help you get better grades. All of a sudden, instead of finding out who Jesus is, we can put a label on him that Jesus is our genie. And sometimes it can be very difficult to get past that label. What happens whenever Jesus doesn't do for you what you thought he was going to do? What happens whenever he betrays the label that you put on him? And your marriage doesn't get better. And churches fall into this sometimes. Churches will sometimes have slogans and logos that sound like if you come to their church, things are going to go better. And they help, whether they mean to or not, we can end up helping feed a certain kind of a label. So let's look at this Nazareth crowd. This story, we pick it up here, another telling of it in Luke 4, verses 14 through 30. Now, this is a little bit of a longer section, and I've got to tell you the truth. I don't know if this is a second visit to Nazareth or if it's the same one. And there's a debate about that. Jesus could have actually gone to his hometown twice, and we get two different recordings of it, or it could have been once, and it's two different tellings. And this one in Luke is a little longer gives us more detail. For us, it doesn't much matter because I think it's going to give us some insight into what the thinking of the people in Nazareth was like. And what I want us to do is to try and see how similar our thinking can be so that we don't end up making the mistake they did and look at the king of kings as just the carpenter's son. So let's pick up the reading here in chapter 4, verses 16 through 30. Give me just a second here. Okay, and it says, And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it's written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And all the eyes... And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? Joseph was a carpenter, so it's basically the same label. Is this not the carpenter's son? A couple things I want to point out to you. Whenever Jesus got there, they handed him a scroll. And it was the book of Isaiah. And so, I don't know, but Bibles are a little easier. We have them marked off in numbers and chapters, and it's a little easier for us to find stuff. The scroll they handed him wasn't that marked off that way. And it was a scroll. And somehow he is able to rifle through that <laughs> thing, and he comes to really Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. Here's the interesting thing. As he reads through this passage, it's a very familiar passage, and Jesus in the middle of it, combines a verse from chapter 58. So he skips around. And to make his point, I guess, the part about 
to set free those who are oppressed comes from Isaiah 58. So he doesn't read it the way that they're used to hearing it read. He skips around. As you look at what he read to them, what's he telling them? What's he pointing to? What does it mean whenever he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me? Not everybody had the Spirit of the Lord upon them. What does it mean when he says, he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor? Not everybody got to be anointed. And this word gospel is a military word. It's about the good news of a victory. It says, he sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. Jesus is telling them, I have been sent to you to tell you that the kingdom of God that you've been waiting for is here. It's time. And then he says, I've been sent to set free those who are oppressed. That was out of order. That came from a different chunk of Isaiah. Then he comes right back to Isaiah 61, and he goes to verse 2, but he doesn't finish verse 2. He only reads part of verse 2. He says, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. He's talking about the year of Jubilee where, I'm not going to get into that this morning, but it was where everything that had been lost was given back to people. God had set it up every 50 years where they'd have a year of Jubilee and everything would be given back. Everything would be restored. Interestingly enough, the way verse 2 goes on is it says, and the vengeance of our God. And see, that was the part that everybody used to seize on. At the time that Jesus is reading this, they are an occupied nation. The Romans are in charge of everything, and they are oppressed, and they were crushing them. They couldn't get rich. They couldn't get ahead. They, they had to pay exorbitant taxes. A Roman soldier could require you to quit what you're doing and carry his load for one mile, no matter what. They, they had all kind, they basically, they were, they were in a hard place. And they had been waiting for God to set the record straight. To set them back as the nation in charge of all other nations, kind of like it was back in the days of King David. And so they could not wait for God to take vengeance on on the Gentiles, on the oppressors. And Jesus didn't read that part. But that didn't tick them off. It says, actually... And he began to say, Today is the scriptures fulfilled in your hearing, in verse 22, and all were speaking well of him. So Jesus comes in, he stands up, he reads something very familiar to them, and then he mixes it up, and he says, I'm the king. He's saying, I am the king, and the kingdom is here. And they didn't get mad. This didn't offend them. It says there that they actually liked it. They were all speaking well at him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. But catch this. They did not lose their label. They didn't drop the label that they had of him because it says, and they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? So how can you know if you've labeled Jesus like they did? Here's the next question. Have I stopped trying to know him better? Have I stopped trying to know him better? If you stop trying to know him better, you've probably labeled him. He walks in accredited with miracles, and he's got gracious words. And they know that he's got some power, and he says, I am the king you've been waiting for. I am bringing the kingdom. It's here. It's being fulfilled in your hearing. And they don't give up the label. They think they know him. They're not trying to find out more about him. 
So my question to you is, is have you quit trying to figure out who Jesus is? Why do you think we would have a year-long theme of trying to look at this? Because it happens. We can label Jesus. So here's, here's some things that I would ask. is How much time do you spend in the Word of God looking for the author? We can read the Bible looking for rules. We can read, like, who was it, um, W.C. Smith, as he was getting ready to die? He was, he was a famous atheist, and he's thumbing through his Bible, and uh, one of his friends came in and says, what are you doing with the Bible? He says, looking for loopholes. We can look at our Bibles for loopholes. But I suggest that the reason that we have the Word of God is so that we can get to know the God of the Word. And see, it's so easy to become religious, to think we know who Jesus is, and just to turn to the Bible for something else. How much time do you spend trying to get to know Jesus? Another thing maybe to check is how much do you talk to him? How much do you pray? What relationship grows if you don't have communication? So I think that's a fair question to ask. Have you stopped trying to know him better? Let's pick back up into the story here. Verse 23, and he said to them, No doubt you'll quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. You ever heard a proverb like, Charity begins at home? Pretty common, right? Physician, heal yourself was the same kind of a proverb. See, Jesus is already knowing where their thoughts are going and where he could do that. He still can. He knows what people are thinking before they say it. And he says, no doubt you're going to say, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we've heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. See, what Jesus was saying to them is that he expected people to tell him, look, you're a healer, so why don't you heal your own people? Why don't you heal your own family? Why not heal people? Why, why heal people in other towns whenever we need your help right here? See, I think that whenever Jesus came to town, they thought, great, he's one of ours. We're going to get the gravy train now. We're going to get the royal treatment. We've heard of all the things he's done in other places. If he did that there, you can only imagine what he's going to do here in his own hometown. Now the question, how can you know if you've labeled Jesus? Which do you want more, his miracles or his kingdom? Which do you want more, his miracles or his kingdom? Which one do you think the folks in Nazareth wanted more? I think they were looking for his power to be displayed in their lives. They wanted the miracles. And I think it's because they labeled him. They didn't see who he was or what he was really offering. See, again, we can get into that whole felt needs approach. What's in it for me? And churches are glad often to cater to this. You know, if you go to buy a car, usually you're buying, you're looking for someone who's going to sell you the most car for the least amount of money, right? A lot of times when people shop for churches, they're looking for the church that can sell them the most bang for their buck, and the buck would be the least commitment. What can you do for my kids? Do you have special programs and, and things for my age group? What can you do for me? That's not quite the same. I think that's looking for the label. I think that's looking for the miracles and not his kingdom. Jesus came offering the kingdom, and because they used a label instead of getting to know him, he couldn't do the miracles either. In fact, I think whenever we settle for a label rather than getting to know Jesus, we end up, like the crowd in Nazareth, we end up offended with him at some point. 
And he doesn't have much power in our lives. He doesn't do any miracles because of our lack of faith. See, what happens whenever Jesus doesn't meet our label? Whenever he doesn't do what we expected him to do? We get offended, don't we? That's the consequence of having a label. It's what happened in Nazareth, and it can happen here at Greater Alton too. Let's push on a little bit. Verse 24, he says, And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his own hometown. Now he's going to tell two stories, and they're going to get so mad. Now they've not been mad at him yet. They're not mad at him yet, but this is going to do it. He's going to tell them two stories that they're all very familiar, that they all very much knew, and they're going to be so mad they're going to want to kill him. In fact, they're going to try. What I want you to do is you listen to these stories that he's going to tell. Try to figure out what about him made him so mad that they'd want to kill him for saying it. He says, verse 25, I say to you the truth. There were many, many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Verse 27, And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. What's going on? Why would these two stories make him, make them, his hometown, ready to kill him? Well, first of all, you kind of got to get in touch with what's being said. Jesus is saying, look, this isn't the first time that God's people didn't get to see God's power. Because it's about faith. And in Elijah's day, he had to go to one of the Gentiles whom you consider inferior. See, the Jews were racists. They were racists. They believed that they were God's chosen people, that they went to the right church. This was all based on who they knew. Who was their ancestor? I I got the godliest grandpa in the world, and that makes me okay. My grandparents were were great, and my great-great-grandparents. In fact, my great-great-great-great-great-great-grandpa was Abraham himself. So that makes me okay. Not only that, but God chose our family and he gave us the right rules. All the Gentiles, all you other people, you try to worship God, you're not even close. You don't even have his name right. God chose us to give him his name. We got all the right doctrines. Even more, we've got this really fancy building and we've got God in a box in the back. That was how they viewed the temple and the Holy of Holies. All of this was about who they were. Okay, so before we, we laugh at them, can we be like that? Ha ha. How many times have you heard somebody say, I'm okay because I was raised by these people, and they were really godly people, and you can't tell me that they weren't? How many times is it because I go to this church as opposed to that church? That makes me okay. Or I have this preacher, and he's better than your preacher. My preacher can beat up your preacher in a debate, (laughs) you know, something along those lines. We get strung out and hung up on qualifying ourselves by all sorts of things, and we become just like the crowd in Nazareth. Because again, Jesus is saying, it's not about any of that stuff, it's about your faith. And God will work with the people that you don't think he'll work with, the people that you feel absolutely superior to on the basis of their faith, and he will reject you 
And it doesn't matter what church you go to. It doesn't matter how much you understand the Bible. It doesn't matter how many rules you can recite. Because the issue is, do you know God? Are you wanting to know His Son? So here's another question. How can you know if you've labeled Jesus? Well, do you see His power in your life? Do you see His power in your life? Elijah, Elisha couldn't use their power inside Israel because the people had no faith. And Jesus was saying, yes, I've got power. And I've shown it in other towns. And I'm going to show it in more towns. But I may not be able to show you anything in this town. Because you don't have any faith. You want to label me one of you as opposed to accepting who I am telling you that I am. And the consequences of that is I can have no power in your life. What about you? If you're not seeing Jesus' power in your life, it could be because you've labeled him. It could be that you've labeled him a liar. Oh, yeah, we don't usually have the guts to say it quite that honestly, do we? But when it comes right down to it, Jesus says, I want you to be pure before you get married. And we say, I think you're a liar. I think I can do this my way. Jesus says, I want you to sacrifice maybe the better job so that you can work for me in bringing heaven to earth. And we say, Jesus, I don't really think you know what you're saying. All sorts of different ways that we can compromise. And we don't see the power of Jesus in our lives. Do you see his power in your life? Let's come back to the story. Verse 28 and 29, he says, And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage. As they heard these things. When you start suggesting that people need to change where they are and drop labels, you will often face rage. In fact, I fully expect this morning that I am making somebody incredibly furious with me. And I'm okay with that. I don't like it, but I'm okay with it. Some of the label that Carla heard was right. I'm not mean, but I don't back down because you get angry at me. At least I hope not to. Because I'd rather you get angry at me and take a strong, hard look at these points than like me and live with a label. And label Jesus. These folks, his hometown folks, get so furious with him whenever they suggest that they've labeled him and that they need to get to know him that says that they got up and they drove him out of the city and they led him to the brow of a hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. You know why they throw someone down a cliff in that day? Because they're fixing to stone him. And the idea was, is if you throw him down, he might break a leg or a bone or something, he can't run off. So he makes an easier target to hit with rocks. They're trying to kill him. So here's a question. How do you know if you've labeled Jesus? Ask yourself, am I pushing him out or am I trusting and obeying him? Am I pushing him out of my life? Am I pushing him out of my mind? How many times are you sitting at that point of decision between sinning and not sinning and you physically or mentally, I should say, you shut him down and you shove him out. You don't want to hear his words because you want to do it your way. 
How is that different than taking him to the brow of the hill to try and silence him? At what point is it that you're ready to hear a label rather than to obey a Lord? Maybe that's the hill that you're trying to push him down. Is it in your married life? Is it in your dating life? Your relationship with a neighbor or a coworker? Is it in an addiction? Is it because you will not repent of an attitude? Here's a big one, because you refuse to forgive someone who's offended you. Jesus, you might have died on the cross for me, but asking me to forgive that person is more than you don't have a right to ask him. Is there a label there? In refusing to forgive, is there a label that you've put on Jesus? I think that there very much is one. So here's the result, and I'm wrapping this up here. The last verse says, But passing through their midst, he went on his way. Now, nobody really knows exactly how this worked. One of two things. Either Jesus kind of did the pass-through-walls kind of thing and just kind of floated through them all mystical and stuff like that. Or it could be that he just had had enough and he gave them a look that could not be misunderstood and he walked right through them. I, I get, I get kind of tickled sometimes whenever I see these, uh, these movies that portray Jesus as this very effeminate white guy with long hair and a beard who, you know, who's doing this number. I don't know where that came from with the three finger or the two fingers of the th- I don't I don't know where that comes from all the Catholic statues are doing this I don't know what that is if that's like a gang sign from the Middle Ages or what you know I, I don't know what that's about but they're all doing this number and they all look pretty you know like they, they've never lifted a weight so Jesus was not that Jesus was a first century Jewish man who's in the prime of his life, and to be a carpenter in the first century means that you're pretty much a lumberjack, I think. That's some rough work. He walked everywhere he went, and he didn't die easy. They were surprised he was still alive at the end of the beating. Jesus was a tough guy. We could speculate on what it means that he passed through their midst, but here's the thing I want you to get. Because the crowd in Nazareth labeled him the carpenter's son rather than said, we don't know this man yet, but we want to. He walked past them and they didn't see him for who he was. He came to bring them a king and a kingdom and they totally missed it. He walked right past them. This is why I really want to encourage you guys here as, as this congregation, man, if, if you've labeled Jesus, your chances of missing him are good. He could walk right past you and you not see him. Man, don't risk it. Those of you that are coming alive in Christ, that are getting to know him better, he's more beautiful, more captivating, more magnificent than we ever thought before. It's like whenever you look at a diamond, it it catches all that light and it's it's one of the most precious stones we've got because it's got all these little facets and each one of them will catch the light just a little differently. Could you imagine... What you would be lost if all you did was seize up on one of those facets to the exclusion of the others and you didn't see the whole thing? Jesus is like a diamond. There are so many facets to him. Is he the carpenter's son? Yes, he's the carpenter's son. But he's a lot more than that. He's also the son of God. And he's the son of man. And he's my redeemer. Get this. He's our brother. 
He's our brother. So while he is the king of kings and God incarnate, he's the same as us on some level. I don't pretend to understand that fully, but I kind of want to know him better. I hope you do too. As one brother to another, let me just encourage you this morning. We're going we're gonna to wrap this up and we're going to have a little time here where I'm going to pray and we're going to pass it. We've got the cards there. There's a, a prayer request that you can fill out, make your needs known, uh, communicate with our prayer team. Uh, if you want it to be confidential, you can mark that and it'll only go to a select couple of people that'll get to pray for you. But what I really want to tell you is, man, don't miss the opportunity to get to know Jesus for who he is. Don't settle for a label. Don't try to put him in some sort of a box. Jesus can't be controlled like that. And I don't want you to miss who he really is. This is an adventure and a journey that we as a church are on. We're going to take a whole year to try and find out more and more and more about who Jesus really is. And if you're just gathering with us for the first time today, man, come on, now's a great time to join up. <laughs> now's a great time to keep coming back as we've tried to find, and, and I don't know what I don't know yet. Like I said, this is a journey. We're looking at the scripture and we're praying and we're asking God to reveal himself to us and to be more powerful in our, in our lives than ever before. I hope that you'll join with us, that each one of you will make a commitment to identify any labels that might exist and to lay those aside and commit yourselves to finding out who the king really is. If you would, let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for loving us and Father, for uh, being so much more than, than what we can ask or imagine. Father, uh, sometimes we're so petty and uh, small-minded, and yet you've invited us to know you, not just know about you, but to actually come to know you. And Father, I believe that that's the best invitation that's ever been given anywhere at any time. I pray, Father, that as a, as a congregation, as individuals, that you'll take us deeper, deeper in love with you than we've ever been before. And Father, I pray that we'll see your kingdom come here in Greater Alton. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.